Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 5. I don't know whether y'all realize this or not, but there are lots of good available seats. Right here in the middle. I mean, even my bales have moved. Usually I can count on them. I mean, looks it looks like something got dropped right there in the middle and y'all scattered. All right, I, part of it is I know this sun coming down and so I will, y'all just take the angelic effect of the light behind me for what it is, all right? All right, I want you to finish a, a statement for me as you would or what you think it would be and it's a statement's going to be on the screen and it's two simple words and I want you to think about how you would fill it in. And so it's this statement. Jesus came. Now, how would you finish that statement? What would you say to complete it? I want you to turn around to somebody. Tell them what you think ought to be what is said there. All right? All right, somebody tell me. What do you, what do you think it should... How should that be completed? Jesus came... To save us, okay? To show the world what God was like for me. There are a couple of ways that the Bible completes this sentence. Now, it won't say uh, Jesus came. It'll say something else. But one is in Luke 19, verse 10, where the Zacchaeus story is told. And it says at the end of that, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. But one of the most interesting things that it says is in Luke 7, 34. It's up on the screen. You don't have to turn there. And it says this. The Son of Man. That's Daniel's term for the Messiah, which means Jesus. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. Now, I'm going to guess that if I gave you a hundred guesses and you didn't realize what the title of the sermon series was going to be, that you would not have come up with Jesus came eating and drinking. Now, The truth is, it shouldn't surprise us because food is a major part of our lives. Amen? Amen? I mean, many of my best memories are tied to food. Amen? When I was growing up, I had a great-grandmother. I was fortunate to have a great-grandmother into my teenage years. And we would gather at their house on Christmas Eve. Now, I really did not know her name for years. Because everybody just called her Mama Bush. If they'd ask me what's her first name, I'd say Bush. That wasn't her first name. It was Martha. All right? But Mama Bush, every Christmas, made the most unbelievable red velvet cake. It's good. I'm going to tell you that. I don't know what she put in it, but I'm going to tell you it wasn't low fat and it wasn't low sugar. And after I became a diabetic or figured that I was, My mom allowed me to have red velvet cake once a year. And it was at Mama Bus's house, all right? I remember growing up at Granny Larson's house, we would pick up on Sundays, we would go to church. On our way home from church, we'd pick up a chicken, a whole chicken, and we'd drive to Halls, Tennessee, about 15 minutes down the road, so that Granny Larson could cook us some fried chicken. I don't know what Granny Larson did to her fried chicken, but it was the best fried chicken I've ever eaten. And this is what I remember about Granny Larson's house. You know, in a lot of places they have kids' tables. How many of you ever ate at a kids' table, all right? At Granny Larson's house, there were too many of us. I didn't have a kids' table. I was on the kids' ironing board, all right? That was a step down from the kids' table. Anybody ever eaten at an ironing board? That's where I was, all right? 
And so I remember that. I, I remember at my house on Christmas Eve, my dad would invite his co-workers over for a Christmas Eve breakfast. And so mom and dad would cook breakfast, and that's how we kicked off our Christmas festivities. At my house on 4th of July, we would have, I mean, we had like a a three-bedroom, small house, smaller house growing up than what even we have now. And and we would have 75 people at our house for 4th of July. My dad would cook ribs and shoulder and uh, onions and potatoes and all of that. When I step off the plane in Brazil, the smells get to me, and I can immediately Think about the food. At our house, we've tried to institute some family kind of food memories. And so occasionally we have taco night. Taco night is exactly what it sounds like. We eat tacos, right? That's what we do. But we have a song that goes with taco night. And before we eat tacos, we have to sing the song. I will not sing it for you now. All right? I know you're disappointed, but... It's to the tune of Macho Man, all right? Some of you will have fun imagining that this afternoon. What about you? What are your food memories? Is there a dish that brings to mind home growing up? Or home with your kids? Or the holidays? I mean, aren't there memories that are tied to food? Part of the reason for that, I believe, is because God has made us with this understanding that food matters. And more importantly, who we share those meals with matter. One writer has said this, Few, few things we do are more expressive of companionship than a shared meal. Someone with whom we share food is likely to be our friend or well on our way to becoming one. Food connects people. I don't know whether you knew this or not, but the word companion comes from a, the Greek la- or from an ancient language that means with bread. A companion is someone with whom you share a meal. It connects our family. It connects strangers to friends. It, it turns into emotional things for us. Nigel Slater is a food writer, and he talks about his first food memories and he had a kind of a tragic childhood and he said that he remembered when he was growing up he used to tell his mom all the time your kisses are like marshmallows Nigel's mom passed away when he was still a young child and his dad started a tradition that every night before he went to bed he'd place two marshmallows beside his bed food can have emotional attachment now the truth is Americans we have a love hate relationship with food. Amen? Television celebrities have become, I mean, television chefs have become celebrities. And yet, as Americans, we are cooking less than we ever have. Did you know that Americans spend $50 billion a year on dieting? $50 billion. At any time in America, 25% of men and 45% of women are currently on some sort of diet. When polled in college, college age women, 91% of them have already been on a diet. This is the one that just blew me away. American Christians spend more money on dieting than on world missions. American Christians spend more money on dieting than on world missions. 
All that to say this, food's important to us, whether we're trying to eat as much as we can or as little as we can. All right? Now, back to Jesus. In other places where it gives his purpose, it tells his purpose. It says he came to seek and to save what was lost. He came to preach good news to the captives. He came to set them free. But in this particular verse in Luke, in Luke chapter 7, it's not the purpose for which he came. It's the method by which he did it. Jesus was a guy that came eating and drinking. Do you know the most slanderous accusation placed against Jesus? That he was a drunkard. That he was a party animal. That he ate too much. That he drank too much. The truth is, if you look at Jesus' life, his mission, his, his way of going about his mission was a good, long meal. Here's one of the things that I find interesting if you look at all the statistics. As our culture becomes increasingly more shallow, our time around the table has become increasingly less. Jesus believed that eating was important. Just in Luke's Gospel, for instance, he's eating all the time. In Luke chapter 5, he eats with tax collectors and sinners in the home of Levi. In Luke chapter 7, he's anointed at the home of Simon the Pharisee during a meal. In Luke chapter 9, he feeds the 5,000. In Luke 10, he eats in the home of Mary and Martha. In Luke 11, he condemns the Pharisees and the teachers of the law at a meal. In Luke 14, Jesus is at a meal when he urges people to invite the poor to their meals rather than their friends. In Luke 19, Jesus invites himself to dinner with Zacchaeus. In Luke 22, we have the account of the Lord's Supper. In Luke 24, the risen Christ has a meal with two disciples in Emmaus, then he later eats fish with the disciples in Jerusalem. And let one scholar just say, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. Now, even when he wasn't at a meal, he talked about it all the time. In Luke 14, he tells the parable of the great banquet. In Luke 15, he tells the parable of the prodigal son. What happens at the end of the parable of the prodigal son? They have a feast, Right? Luke tells about the woman who provided food for Jesus in chapter 8. When asked if a few were saved, Jesus warns people to ensure themselves to enter the kingdom. For on the last day, people will say, we ate and drank in your presence. Jesus tells his disciples that the goal is to eat and drink at his table in the kingdom. Food is used to describe salvation and judgment and Chapters 1, 6, and 25. People are described in terms of good food and bad food in 3, 6, and 12. Jesus is called a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and of sinners. His eating and drinking were so important in the mission of Jesus. They were a sign of his friendship with tax collectors. His excess of food was an excess of grace. So the meals of Jesus represent something bigger. They represent a new world, a new kingdom, a new outlook. Jesus' meals aren't just symbols, they're application. They're not just pictures, they're the real thing. Food is stuff. It's not ideas, it's not theories. It, it's, it's Him doing what He came to do. One scholar wrote it this way. For Jesus' feast was not just a metaphor for the kingdom. As Jesus announced the feast of the kingdom, he also brought it into reality through his own feasting. Unlike most theologians, he did not come preaching about something, promoting ideas, or teaching maxims. He came teaching about the feast of the kingdom, and he came feasting. He didn't just talk about it. 
He did it. So here's what we're going to do. Over the next few weeks, we're going to take some specific meals in the life of Jesus in the book of Luke. And we're going to say, what is he teaching us here? What is the lesson that's being taught around, in, and through this meal? Now, um, if we were in a different environment, I'd just tell everybody to bring their own favorite food and we'd eat while we do it, all right? But I don't, that might not go over too well and people would get jealous of what you had to eat, all right? But the idea is that it ought to be shared around the table. It ought to be discussed in that way. So if you've got your Bibles open to Luke 5, we're going to begin there today. If you don't, now's the time to get there. Luke chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 27. And just a note, I, I am reading today out of the Holman Christian Standard Version of the Bible. So if you've been reading with me on the NIV, it may be a little different. Verse 27 says, After this, and we'll talk about what the after this is here in a minute. Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. Then Levi hosted a great banquet for him at his house. Now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were guests with them. But the Pharisees and their scribes are complaining to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and the sinners? Jesus replied to them, The healthy don't need a doctor, but the sick do. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Then they said to him, John's disciples fast often and say prayers, and those of the Pharisees do the same, but yours eat and drink. Implication there is that your disciples aren't doing what they're supposed to. Jesus says, You can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them, can you? But the days will come when the groom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. He also told him a parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, not only will he tear the new, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. It will spill and the skins will be ruined. But new wine should be put in fresh wine skins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants new because he says the old is better. Here's what Jesus is teaching them. And Here's what I want to do. I want to start at the end of this little passage, and then I want to go back through the first part. What Jesus is teaching them in this passage and in this section is that he is bringing a completely different order to the world. That he is inaugurating something completely new and different. Now, look at those last few verses. It's this interesting thing about an old garment and a new garment and old wineskins and new wineskins. And for many of us, that stuff just isn't part of our everyday life. What he's saying there is, what I have brought is not something that's just an improvement on what used to be here. What I have brought is not just a kind of a, a new form. It is completely and radically Different. Now, here's what happens at the end when he's telling those stories. First of all, he makes a statement that most of us would realize. If we'd gone to the store and we bought a brand new blue shirt, and we go look in our closet and there is an old red shirt that's got a hole in it, we are not going to cut a patch off of the new blue shirt and put it on the red. Why? Because you'll ruin the new shirt and it doesn't match. 
What Jesus says is, listen, what I'm bringing, the message I'm bringing, is not something you just say, oh, this is a patch for the old system. We're just trying to improve it a little bit. The new and improved. Do you ever wonder about those... Uh, um, you walk through the grocery store and they've got a box of cereal, new and improved taste, which basically means our other stuff was bad, right? Even better now, all right? This isn't just patching something up. Then he tells this story about wineskins, and this is one of those things that, like I said, is not familiar to most of us because we don't deal with wine and wineskins anymore. But the idea is that they would take wine, and as it was getting ready to ferment, they would put it into new wineskins, skin that was made off of an animal that was off of their back. And as they put it in there and formed it in there, as the wine fermented, it kind of expanded. And the new wineskin would expand with it. Now, when it got to a certain point, it set. And so if you filled an old wineskin with new wine that was still expanding and growing, what would happen? It would burst. So nobody did that. Jesus is saying, what I'm doing is bringing something completely different. And here's the lesson he's teaching through this whole thing. The overall lesson is this, is that grace turns everything upside down. Grace turns everything upside down. Now, Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 39, sits right in the middle of what people call Jesus' first controversies with the Pharisees. This is where he starts really getting in trouble. This is where the Pharisees go from, this might be a guy we need to keep our eye on, to this is a guy that we've got to take care of. This is the section in Luke where the Pharisees go from, oh, Jesus is just another one of those teachers that's out there starting to get followers, to our main attention is now on this Jesus of Nazareth. And it starts at the beginning of chapter 5 in an episode where Jesus heals a man. You see, in their day and time, when lepers were around, you avoided them at all costs. Now, what was the reason for that? Because they thought if you touched a leper, what happened? You got leprosy. So they would take them and they would ostracize them. They would put them outside the camp. They wouldn't allow contact with people. They couldn't sit anywhere anybody sat. They couldn't touch anything. It was the worst possible place to be in a place where you had to touch a leper or touch anything they had touched. They were unclean. They would have to yell as they walked through, unclean, unclean. They would have to announce they were walking so no one would accidentally bump into them. Because if you touched a leper, you got leprosy. Jesus, in the first part of Luke chapter 5, heals a leper. How does he heal him? He touches him. And instead of the leprosy transferring to Jesus, Jesus transfers to the leper. And the world begins to turn upside down. Well, the Pharisees are a little concerned about that. How did that happen? That's not supposed to happen. That's not how things work. And so in Luke chapter 5, it continues. And right before this passage is the passage that most of you are familiar with where Jesus is teaching and some friends bring a paralytic and they, they bring him on a mat and they bring him to Jesus and they put him in front of him. And Jesus says what to him at first? Get up, you're healed. Is that the first thing he says? No. He says what? Your sins are forgiven. Well, nobody does that. That's God's work. That's not man. Who does he think he is? And Jesus 
knowing their mind says, if you want me to say get up and walk, then that's what I'll do. Get up and walk. And so he's beginning to turn on its head what the Pharisees thought. Grace has a way of turning life upside down. I mean, the idea behind grace is simply that it is God's giving us something or giving anybody anything that they don't deserve. There is no merit in it. There's no reason for it. It just happens. And in Luke chapter 5, verse 27 and following, He's going to show us some way that grace turns everything upside down. First of all, He tells us in the calling of Levi that grace turns life upside down. Look at verse 27 and 28 again. It says, After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. Now, just for your information, uh, Levi and Zacchaeus are both tax collectors. Zacchaeus is the head tax collector. Levi was probably a guy that sat on the road as you entered town, and as you entered and exited town, you had to pay a fee for entering and exiting, especially if you had um, food, so it would be an import tax, a tariff. And he, he got to access the tax as you came in and the food as you left, okay? They didn't have duty-free shops in those days, all right? You came in and you came out. Whatever you came in with, you paid tax on. Whatever you went out with, you paid tax on. And so he's sitting there. And Jesus comes up to him and says very simply, follow me. Now, in the other account of Levi or Matthew being called by Jesus, this next little phrase is left out. But Luke wants us to emphasize it. Verse 28 says, So, leaving everything behind. Now, one of the things you learn when you're studying Scripture is when people go off script, it's important to understand why they went off script. In Matthew's own telling of this, he doesn't say leaving everything behind. He, he leaves that out. So why is Luke wanting it in here? Part of Luke's gospel is emphasizing the world being turned upside down. And what he's showing here in the life of Levi is that when Jesus Christ calls you to follow, it should cause you to leave everything behind. What he's saying is there is no half-hearted commitment to Jesus. There is no partial commitment to Jesus. There is no... I'll think about it, commitment to Jesus. It is all or nothing. He got up and he began to follow him. Matthew here, Levi, is held up as an example of what it means to follow Jesus. It means hearing him and doing what he says. It means heeding the call. It means abandoning your former life. If you're a follower of Jesus, let me ask you a question. How have you been affected by the fact that you're a follower of Jesus. What's different in your life because you follow Him? The answer should be a radical answer. There should be radical differences in our lives because we are followers of Jesus. And yet almost all of the research says that there's very little. We have the same spending habits as our non-believing neighbors. We have the same viewing habits as our non-believing neighbors. We have the same uh, social um, networks. We have the same uh, friendship developments. We rarely talk about our faith. 
If you look at a picture of an American Christian and what they believe and how they act, and you put it next to someone who says they're not a believer in Jesus, there is very little difference. The average believer gives slightly more to charity, which includes church, than a non-believer. Scripture teaches over and over again that when Jesus calls us to follow, it is not to a half-hearted commitment. Let me ask you, what's non-negotiable in your life when it comes to following Jesus? What are the things, if the Lord asked you to give it up, or the Lord took it away, that you would say, I can't follow you anymore? Is it your family? Is it your finances? Is it security? Levi here, Matthew, left everything. Here's the thing about working as a tax collector. That was not a job that you went back to your boss and said, hey, can I have it back? When you left it, you left it. He had become a traitor to all the people he grew up with, so he couldn't go back to them. The idea here literally is that he left everything he could imagine to follow Jesus. What difference has following Jesus made in your life? What difference has grace made in your life? The fact that Jesus came, as some of you said, to die for your sins, to rescue you. What difference does that make? On Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, on Thursday, on Friday. What difference does it make? Matthew teaches us here. Luke, in his writing about the call of Levi, says that grace turns our lives upside down. Here's the second thing that it teaches us. is that grace turns love upside down. Verse 29 says the first thing that Matthew wanted to do What was the first thing he wanted to do after Jesus called him and he followed? The first thing is, I want to throw a party. Now, I just want you to know, that is common. Right? What does Zacchaeus do right after he comes down from the tree? They they go have a party. We talked about the prodigal son. What happens? He comes home, they do what? They have a party. It says that in heaven, when one person comes to know Christ, what happens? The angels do what? They throw a party. God's people in the Bible like the party. That's exactly how they describe Baptist, isn't it? Well, maybe not. Should be. They like to have a good time. I'm not talking like potluck dinners. That's how they describe Baptist. Although, you can party with potluck, okay? But the truth is, Levi gets saved or called or whatever word you want to use. He begins to follow Jesus. And as he does, the first thing he thinks is, i got to let all my friends in on this. So he has a party. And he invites all of his friends. And guess what? They're all tax collectors. And Luke, politically correct in his writing, says, others. Right? Tax collectors and others. Now, the Pharisees come along. Now, you think, well, what are they doing at the party? Well, the truth is that they probably were having something like a symposium. That sounds like a big 
intellectual discussion, but what it was is they would have these dinner parties and they would have these banquets and they would kind of let people on the outside see what was going on. They, you have to remember, they didn't have houses that were all shut up because they needed ventilation and air and so people could hear what was going on and come by. They could stick their head in the windows and the Pharisees heard what was going on and their issue is not with the party. It's with the guest list. Right? So it tells us in the Scripture that Jesus is there and He's with Levi and they have these tax collectors and others and then the Pharisees come by and they call one of the disciples up and say, come here. Is that your teacher Jesus in there? And aren't those tax collectors and sinners in there? You see, the problem the Pharisees had wasn't with the party. It was with the guest list. Here's one of the things that you find interesting or I find interesting in Scripture. When you read the New Testament, the more reprehensible the people, the more comfortable they felt with Jesus. The more outcast the person, the more comfortable they felt with Jesus. The question I have is, is that true of the church today? You see, I think in America the church has turned into a place where respectable people go. And those that aren't respectable stay away. In his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, Philip Yancey tells the story of a, a guy that was ministering to a prostitute. And she had come to the end of a rope, and she started to describe her life, and it was a tragic, terrible life. And he started talking, and she said, I've gone everywhere I've known to go. I've gone all, in this place and that place. And he said, well, have you ever gone to church? She goes, church? Why would I ever go there? Those people don't love people like me. When grace comes into the equation... It changes how we love. One author says this about the Pharisees and about us. The teachers of the law had created a system that allowed them to feel superior and lifted not one finger to help others. Think about how it might play out today. Today's Pharisee might condemn the poor for their dysfunctional families but not lift a finger to help. Today's Pharisees might condemn the poor for their excessive drinking, but not lift one finger to ease their pain. Today's Pharisees might condemn the poor for their laziness, but not lift one finger to provide employment. Today's Pharisees might condemn the poor for their abortions, but not lift one finger to adopt unwanted children. I'm not defending dysfunctional families, drunkenness, and so on, but we can't condemn these things at a distance. That's legalism. We must come alongside proclaiming and demonstrating the transforming grace of God. Grace turns love upside down. Here's the reason. It's because you realize that you didn't deserve it either. Jesus is handing out God's party invitations and their invitations read, they invited to my party a new creation, just come as you are. The religious leaders agreed there was a party and even the leaders agreed uh, that it was impossible to attend. But when they passed out the invitations, it said, you got to get changed. you got to get cleaned up. You're not quite good enough yet to be a part. Let me ask you, when it comes to love in your life, when it comes to ministering in your life, are you one of those that loves across barriers or are you one that tells them to get cleaned up first? And it's amazing how depending on where we are in life, we can justify our own lack of love 
by using our Christianity as an excuse. Anybody here read the book The Help or watched the movie The Help? Anybody seen that? Okay. Help is a book written about the South in the 1950s. And there's a particular, I didn't read the book, but I saw the movie. There's a particular scene in that when uh, the help, one of the ladies that's considered the help, comes to ask her white employer for a little bit of help so their kids can go to college. And she says to her, the Christian thing to do is to earn your own way. And so I'm being a good Christian and encouraging you to do it yourself and not give you any help. Now, the tragic thing about that statement is that sentiment permeated this area of the country in the 1950s. And if truth be known, it still in some places permeates the culture in this area of the country today. And yet, it is as far from Scripture as you can be. Grace turns our love upside down. Here's the last thing and we're done. Grace turns celebration upside down. Jesus replied, the healthy don't need a doctor, the sick do. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, it's important to realize He does call them to repentance, but then He tells them that And when they come to repentance, it is time to party. Verse 33, they said to him, wait a minute, but Jesus, uh, John's disciples, you know John, the guy that baptized, you know John, right? The one that baptized, John. His guys fast all the time. Why aren't your guys doing that? Isn't that the most spiritual thing to do? I mean, we fast. We let other people know we're fasting because we want them to know how righteous we are. Shouldn't your disciples be fasting? And Jesus says, no. You can't make them fast while the groom is with them. He gives them this little kind of phrase at the end that the groom will be taken away, then they will fast. and That's the coming crucifixion death of Jesus. And then the idea is in the resurrection, the party is back on. And what we get in the sense of Luke in this whole chapter, what we get in the sense of this particular passage is that the people of God ought to be the most joyous people on the planet. They ought to be the most fun to be around. And they ought to be having such a good time that people are saying, what is wrong with them? Amen? Now, y'all didn't act like y'all really believed that. And you definitely don't look like you really believe that. Most of you look like, when is he going to be done? Oh, can we get done with this? Let's move on so I can sit through another hour and then go home. And then I can really cheer at the football game that comes on. Because that's the fun thing. I'm a Cardinals baseball fan. Some of you are Braves fans, and I would apologize, but I'm not really that sorry, all right? And on Wednesday night... The Cardinals completed what at the time was the biggest comeback in the history of baseball to get into the playoffs. It lasted for 30 minutes. And then it's the second biggest. And you know what I saw when they got in the clubhouse and they found out they had won? They just sat at their locker room. That was really good. I am glad that that happened. Well, let's all get our stuff together and get ready. to. Is that what happened? What did they do? They had a party, all right? 
Now, they were spraying each other with stuff. They were jumping around. They are so worried about what was going to happen, they put tarps up on the lockers, right? So they wouldn't get messed up too much. Wouldn't it be great sometimes people thought, well, we got to put tarps up when those church people come around because we don't know what's going to happen. I mean, they just have a good time. I mean, they were spraying each other in the face. They had worked 162 games to get to this point, and then they were just excited. Now, they got killed last night and probably aren't going to make it any further. But they had a party while it lasted. What do they have to celebrate more than the fact that we who had no hope have been given an eternal place with God? Nothing. It's temporal. Guess what? In probably four or five days, they're going home. They're not even, they didn't win their division. They were the wild card champs. They were the grace people. They got an extra chance. What about you? When people look at your life, would they say that you have a life that involves joy and that you are a blast to be around? Or are you like the Pharisees? There's a little word in there that says complaining. It was a word in their language that you could almost hear the gritting of the teeth as you said it. Here's the thing that Jesus teaches in this first meal in Luke is that if you believe that God, in His infinite love and wisdom, has rescued you from a place of absolutely no hope, then it should turn your life, your love, and your celebration upside down. Let me ask you a question. Has that happened for you? Let me ask you another question. What sinners and tax collectors are you inviting to the party? Who is it in your life that needs to come and be a part of this glorious party of following Jesus? And are you doing anything about it?